Turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 22. And, and we're going to be reading big chunks today, so we're actually not going to project the words up on the screen. And so even if you don't normally uh, grab a Bible, I'd encourage you to do so today. Uh, because today we're going to talk about revival. And we're going to talk about how God's Word moves powerfully. And to do that, we're going to use the story of a young king named Josiah in Second Kings. Chapter 22, again on page 329, if you're using one of the chair Bibles, which again, I'd, I'd extra encourage you this morning to do so. But if I'm going to talk about revival, I'm sure there are many things that are running through your head, especially if you've been a believer for any amount of time. So I want to define what I mean when I say Revival. The revival that I'm talking about doesn't always happen in a white tent, though it can, especially if you really like white tents. Um, You could say that revival is intense then. Um, Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here. Actually, I won't be here all week. I'm leaving. See ya, Montana. All right. But when I'm talking about revival is when two things happen. Two things happen in revival. One, unbelievers become believers. And two, what we might call sleepy Christians wake up. Meaning that some who who claim the name of Christ but who don't live it out have a new invigorating spirit in their lives and take their faith more seriously. So when I say the word revival, those are the two things that are the fruit of a revival, that people come to know Christ and that those who perhaps did not take their faith very seriously do so in a new and bold way. Tim Keller gives this definition of revival. He says it's, it's quote, an intensification of, of the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit. And the ordinary operations are conviction of sin, conversion, the giving of assurance, sanctifying us and turning us into more holy men and women, and therefore bolder witnesses for the gospel. And what I want us to see this morning is sort of a bookend to our sermon series on Psalm 119, is that God brings about revival through the proclamation of his word. If you look at your big idea there on your bulletin, if you're following along in your outline there, revival is when through the proclamation of the word of God, the Holy Spirit empowers repentance and joyful obedience. And again, we see at the center of revival, we see the proclamation of the Word of God. And that's why we spent 22 weeks going through Psalm 119 and talking about God's Word. Because the only thing that can bring people to put their faith in Christ or to wake up 
from their spiritual sleep is the proclamation of the word of God. And to show you that, that it's God's word that produces conviction of sin, repentance, and therefore belief and joyful obedience and being a disciple of Jesus Christ, we're going to look at a story of revival that happened when a young man named Josiah was king. And we're going to see in this what I'll call, for lack of a better term, the three stages of revival. That the word of God is proclaimed. Two, that the Holy Spirit empowers sincere repentance. And three, the Holy Spirit empowers joyful obedience. So let's first look at the word of God is proclaimed. Look at 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 1 to 10. And again, I I will be reading large chunks today, so again, I'd encourage you to follow along in your Bible. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adaliah of Bozkat. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. That is, to the carpenters, and to the builders, and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. So, so far in the story we have Josiah, And we're told that he followed after his father, David. Now, David was not his direct father. What that means is that he was a descendant of King David, the king who had a heart after God. And Josiah was a good king. And the way the Bible tells us that is that he acted like David. And notice he did so from a very young age. And they're giving money to workers at the temple because they're fixing the place up. And the workers, look at verse 7, but no accounting shall be asked for them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. So God is working here. Let's read on in verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. So they find 
the book of the law, the Bible of their time. That was the part of the Bible that they have. And notice, they had to find it, which means that they didn't have it before. They had lost, literally had lost their Bible. And they find it. And they read it. And we're going to see that this is the first step of revival. The first steps of repentance and belief. That God's word must be read. God's word must be found and proclaimed. We see this in historical examples. We see this in the life of Martin Luther, who when he found Romans chapter 1, verse 17, it led him to help begin the Protestant Reformation of getting back to the gospel. That we need to be confronted with the word of God to have change in our lives. That we need to confront others with the word of God for them to become believers. There's a similar story in Nehemiah chapter 8 where they had to find the Bible again. Again, they have a problem losing their Bible. And it said that the Levites helped the people to understand the law while people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So to be confronted by the word of God, you need to hear the word of God read and explained. And isn't that what we do here? That preaching is reading God's word and explaining it clearly. And so it can be understood. And so one thing we need to see that for revival to happen, we need people who can explain God's word. The Levites, that was their job, was to know the law and explain it to the people in addition to the work they did for the sacrifices. But, but we need people regularly to be explaining clearly God's word. That as we read and we tell one another about it, but every time we're confronted, now sometimes we're confronted with comfort, but sometimes we're confronted with conviction and we're confronted with our sin. And so sometimes we're confronted differently, but we're always confronted. And we always need to be committed as God's people to the next generation of those who are trained to explain God's word. This is why we support missionaries who do theological training. This is why both Pastor Dave and I have gone overseas to do theological training. Because there's always a need for God's people to hear someone explain clearly the word of God. And that's why, that's why we preach the way that we do here. I don't just come up and I don't just tell you, you know, something I thought this week or something I saw or tell you a story about how I did something great. First of all, I don't have many of those stories. But, but what do we do? We come up, we read God's word, and we explain God's word 
We do that up here. We do that with our children. We do that with the youth. We do that in our small groups. Because that's what we need. We need God's word explained. And we need to keep training up that next generation. You need to be caring about younger people, that they have people who can explain to them the word of God. Because I want you to think about this, that they lost the Bible. So that the next generation had to go in and clean out the closets in the temple, and, oh, hey, look what we found, the book that our whole lives are to be based on. Would have been good to know that it was there. Sort of an oversight, you know? But it had to be lost at some time, didn't it? And we need to make sure for our kids and our grandkids and the people who are going to be at this church when we're dead, that they still have the word of God. And that they still have people who can explain it to them clearly so they can understand the words. Because when the word of God is proclaimed, that is when the next two steps happen. And that is repentance and joyful obedience. And sometimes we want the repentance and joyful obedience, but we're not willing to be teachers. And we're not willing to proclaim the word of God. But you can't have the second two without the first. To get the good stuff, you got to do the hard task of taking time to explain the word of God to people. So let's look how the proclamation of the word leads to spirit-empowered repentance. Let's pick up our story at verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Achbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Asiah the king's servant saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Akbor and Shaphan and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. See, now you're thankful that I get to read this, right? Okay. <laughs> now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. 
but to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Josiah the king. Now keep in mind, he's the king. This is not the days of elected democracy. Okay, the king, if he wanted to kill you, could kill you. Okay, there's no court of appeals with kings right? The king has the power. And when this man of power, who is the top person in his whole country, hears the word of the Lord, he tears his clothes in grief. And then in verse 19, we understand why. Look at verse 19 again. So the the, the tearing of the clothes was a demonstration of verse 19 because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. Well, what causes him to weep? Why would the king weep when he heard his Bible read? And why would he be penitent? Why would he be sorry? Because I think when the word of God was read to the king, he understood his sin. He understood the the judgment that his sin deserved. He understood that he did deserve the wrath of God. And he was cut to the heart. He was brought under a huge conviction of sin and it drove him to repentance. A repentance that we see God honored and God accepted. And that's one of the jobs of our Bible is to confront us with our sin. That we have fallen short of the glory of God. That all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Josiah hears about his sin, how he has not followed God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he weeps. Friends, when we see, when we are confronted with our sin through God's word, we need to weep. 
And we need to beg for the mercy of God. And we need to repent. Because we understand just how bad that sin is. We understand that we do deserve judgment and eternal death apart from the grace of God. The story of revival, the story of waking up to the wonderful salvation of Jesus begins with God's word being proclaimed and that word showing us our wickedness and sin and the darkness of our iniquity. And we need to humble ourselves before God and confess that sin. Because when we confess, he is faithful and just to listen to that confession, just as he listens to the confession of Josiah. Look at the end of verse 19. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. And to show that he has not only heard, but also accepted the repentance of Josiah, he says in verse 20, Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. God promises peace to show that he has accepted the repentance that Josiah offers to God. And it's a clear reminder that we are all from the king down to the lowest among us, we are all in need of repentance of sin. There is no one who does not have that sin that deserves judgment. And we need to see that repentance is built into the life of the believer. There's that initial repentance. That that's maybe where some of you are at, that you've never repented of your sin and placed your faith in Jesus. And maybe you're there. And that initial repentance of God, I am a sinner and I deserve your judgment. And that initial, that first humbling before God. Or maybe you've done that. And now, as a believer in Jesus, now begins that daily repentance. That daily recognition that try as we do, we still sin. And that we can come to God and repent. And friends, I think that's the sign of a mature believer that they understand that they sin and that they do need to repent. And that's a practice we need to daily and regularly build into our lives. Because if we don't understand the problem of sin, we won't understand the need for salvation. We won't understand the need for God to say to Josiah, I have heard you. And to accept that repentance. We all need to repent. Because there can be no life. There can be no revival without repentance of sin.
next step. So we see that we're confronted by God's word, that we are called to repent of our sin. And the third step is that the Holy Spirit empowers joyful obedience. Now, just so you know, I should read the entirety of chapter 23, but I'm only going to read the first three verses, so you're welcome. But, but go back later, read the rest, okay? But, but I'm, one to three summarizes it, so you're welcome. Okay, chapter 23, verses one to three. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, again, another way to talk about your Bible, that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book, and all the people joined in the covenant. And so after he is confronted with God's word, the king repents of his sin, and here we see joyful obedience we see him making a covenant with God, a commitment to God. And look at the content of this commitment. Verse 3, to walk after the Lord, to live his life according to the way that the Lord wanted, and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes to actually listen to what God's word says and to then do it. To actually change his life because of what God's word said. And to do so with all his heart and all his soul. That here is a relationship that breaks the boundaries of just showing up on Sunday morning. (laughs) Of just sitting in your chair for about an hour, hour 15, hour 20 maybe with communion today. Okay, I'm just saying. Um, But that is an all-encompassing commitment to God with all his heart and with all his soul. The king has woken up. The king is fully devoted to his relationship with God. And again, as we're thinking about this today, again, the first thing that we need to understand is that your first act of joyful obedience to God is belief in Jesus. For those of us living on this side of the cross of Christ, the first act of obedience is placing your trust in Jesus Christ. And for some of you, 
That's the step you're at. That, that as you hear from God's word this morning, that you are hearing that you are a sinner, but what you also need to hear is that there is a way to be saved from your sin. And we know the rest of the story that God sent his son, Jesus, to die so that our repentance would work. So that when we repent of our sin, the work of cross on the Christ gives us a righteousness from God so that we can be forgiven and reunited with the God who created us. And that he offers that righteousness, that forgiveness, that relationship to us through faith. That it is a gift he offers to faith. And and to receive that, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to place your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and for that reconciliation to the God who created you. And for some of you, that's where you're at. That first act of joyful obedience of placing your trust in Jesus Christ that first time. And when you do that, you experience revival in the way that the Bible talks about how we are dead in our sin, but we are made alive in Christ Jesus. And when you place your trust in Jesus, he shocks your heart and you come back to life. But again, for those who have already place their faith in Christ, I want you to see the fully devoted nature of his joyful obedience. That is, with all his heart and with all his soul. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, too often we don't give Jesus everything. And so some of you out there, there is a call on your life to wake up that you've been napping on God. And I pray that God would convict you through his word and through his spirit for you to wake up and for you to say, I am done giving Jesus half of everything. And I am ready to fully devote my life to him. Because through his word, we see that's what we're called to. Again, go back to verse 3. A covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul. I want you to be confronted by God's word that's saying that to you this morning. Do you follow God with all your heart and all your soul? Or do you just try to get by with the bare minimum because you shouldn't, you know, you don't want to be bothered with the rest of it? So today, if that's, if that's you, I want you to find joy in fully devoting your life to Christ. I want to read you a couple verses from Nehemiah 8 that speak more to this joy aspect of our obedience. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 10 to 12. 
Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Did you know that that's where that verse was from? The story of revival in Nehemiah 8 is where we get that oft-quoted half part of a verse there. (laughs) First of all, that's a lesson. Always quote the whole part of the verse. Okay, But secondly, we need to see that the joy of the Lord being their strength is the joy to be obedient to the God to whom they confessed their sin and made a covenant with. Verse 11, so the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went back their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So when you really understand the words being declared to you from God's word, you will be compelled to joyfully obey and to joyfully give all of your life to the God who saved you. Now, I want to summarize a little bit of the rest of chapter 23 because not only is turning your life around and waking up in your faith about doing the right thing, but it's also stop doing the wrong thing. And that there is sin in our lives that as we mature in Christ, we need to kill and cut out of our life. And if you read the rest of chapter 23, you see that Josiah, as an act of obedience, goes to war against the false idols that were in Israel at the time. And it reads like a war story because he is going to holy war to get rid of the false idols and the false gods from his country. And we see that as a wonderful act of obedience. And for some of you, that's where you're at, that there is sin in your life that you need to kill that you need to go after and cut out of your life. And that's another way that God will bring you joy. Because that sin won't give you joy. Isn't that one of the great lies of sin? If I do this that God doesn't want me to do, I'll find joy. But joy is found in obedience to the God who saved you. So I want to close with a couple points of applications here. Number one, what am I doing today so that the next generation doesn't need to find God's word? What am I doing today so that my kids and potential grandkids and great-grandkids and people who are going to be around when I'm dead, what am I doing today so that they don't have to go and clean out the closet and magically find a Bible? How am I building into the next generation so that they understand God's word and I can give it to them and I can hand it to them so that they don't lose it because of me? Number two, am I receptive to the conviction that comes from God's word? Again, a quote from Tim Keller talking about revival. It is a gift of God centered on the preaching of the gospel It is something that we can be receptive of, but we can't just create. And so 
this is a prayer in your life of, of God, make my heart receptive to what your word is telling me. That, that through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we would actually understand what God is saying to us. Thirdly, I want us to pray for revival. I want us to pray that God would use our proclamation of the word, whether here in the sermon or in your daily lives, to bring people to Christ and to wake up our friends and family who seem to have gone astray. I want to give you a quick story about a revival you've probably never heard of. And that's the revival of 1857. Let me read you a quick quote here. Early recollection of the revival traced its origins to a lunch hour prayer meeting held at North Dutch Church in Manhattan, just a five-minute walk from Wall Street. Former businessman turned missionary Jeremiah Calvin Lanfear hosted the sparsely attended first meeting on September 23, 1857. Yet week by week, the gathering grew spawning copycat prayer meetings around New York City. Within six months, businessmen across the country met during their lunch hours to pray that God would work among them in a special way. This was not clergy manufactured. It was ordinary men and women who took their lunch break at work to read the Bible together and to pray for one another. And God used that to bring people to faith and to bring revival to his church in a mighty way. And we see that it's not the extraordinary, but it is the ordinary work of the Spirit through the proclamation of the word of God that brings people to faith and wakes up those who have been napping. A big part of this, I think, begins with, with as those of us who know our Bibles, those of us who have been taught our Bibles, I think it begins with repentance. And, and, and we're going to go to communion here, and I want to invite those who are helping to serve communion come up. But as a part of our communion service, Go ahead, come up and sit in the front if you're going to help with communion. But I found, I have this prayer. uh, Dave, go ahead, put it on here. And it's a prayer of confession, and I want to talk talk you through it, and then we're going to pray it together out loud. Let me read it and say some things, and then we'll keep going. It says, Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. There's that language of repentance that we saw with Josiah and saw in Nehemiah. But then the next part is that joyful obedience. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, 
renew us and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And during our time of communion that we have time to to make confession, as we prepare our hearts to eat the bread and drink the cup, that this would be leading us into communion. So go back to the previous slide, Dave. I want we're going to say this out loud as a prayer together. So most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. We'll pass out both elements together. We will um, pass out the bread and the juice. Uh, We invite anyone who's a believer in Jesus to partake with us, even if you aren't a member here. But we ask that you only take communion if you are a believer in Christ.